from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Welcome to Bike Talk. I'm Taylor Nichols. I'm Nick Richard. Hey, Nick. Pouring rain here is not a whole lot of riding on, on my end. How about you? It's snowy. It's cold. But we know that those are no excuses. That's here, right. Ryan. It's not bad riding. It's just bad clothing. You know, I wanted to talk really quick before we got going about this idea of making connections with people. Today on the show, we have a really wonderful interview with Miriam Pinsky, and she's been working on a project that it turns out I've been working on for like three or four years, and we've never met. And I worry about us all being in our own little cocoons as we fight this big fight. Last week on the show, we had Joe Linton from Los Angeles and Alexa Sledge from New York on, and they're two big bicycle advocates, Streets Blog LA and Transportation Alternatives, and they'd never met. And I can't help but think that our fight would be easier if we connected more of those dots. Well, that's kind of our mission here. Connecting the dots, exactly. Also, last week on the show, we talked a little bit about to cycling have a drinking problem. Have you thought any more about that? Uh, yeah, it was a good show. <laughs> I didn't mean that. I meant that you thought any more about to cycling have a drinking problem. Yeah, I've thought a lot about it. I haven't, I haven't come to any conclusions. I mean, you mentioned that the article in Bicycling Magazine was saying that no amount of drinking is a good idea, but then also that it's really nice to have a IPA after a ride. And it's a solid argument. And we talked about, you know, after the after ride, operate ride, you might call it also, you know, riding after a couple of beers. And we, we thought we'd ask Jim Pokras of Pokras and Dallas Rays to come back on the show and give us a little insight on, you know, what are the laws about riding your bike and drinking alcohol, having open alcohol, being drunk. So Jim Pokras, welcome back to Bike Talk. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm glad to be here. And um, and give you, you know, my my views a little bit on, on riding um, a bicycle under the influence. You're a big cyclist. Do you have a beer after you ride sometimes? Well, I do. But, you know, the thing is, is that I think everybody knows that, you know, riding um, a bike or driving a car under the influence is not a good idea. Probably differs from state to state. But riding under the influence in California is a crime. And people should know that. And it's different than a DUI. So, I'm here to you know shine right. any kind of light or any answer any questions that you have with regard to that. Well, what do they call it? Do they call it RUI or our biking? Well, they call it cycling or? under the influence, a CUI. Oh. Okay, cycling under the influence, and and it's very vague in the law as to exactly you know what that means because there aren't any specific things like when you're driving a car. If you're a minor, you know, point oh two, you're driving under the influence. If you're um, a major, it's a point oh eight, and you know, and they have breathalyzers and they take tests, and if you know you don't pass, you're driving under the influence, and that's right. a DUI. When you say major, you mean someone over eighteen or someone over twenty one or what? Yeah, somebody over eighteen. Oh, okay. Cycling under the influence, everybody has to understand it's a crime. The thing is, is that it's very vague, however, um, and the penalties for it are a lot less severe than a DUI. You get a DUI, you get arrested, you lose your license. I mean, you could spend time in jail and things like that. Um, a CUI um, has less severe penalties for that. And it's easier to fight it and to win than it is on a DUI because it's so vague as to you know what, you know, what they have to prove in order to prove that you're under the influence. 
Yeah, so when a policeman stops you and they smell, you know, alcohol on your breath or you're acting funny or something like that, it's a perfect opportunity for a police officer to give give a cyclist a bad time. Right. What are the penalties for CUI? It's a $250 fine. Um, there are certain circumstances where you can have your license suspended um, if you're over 21 years of age, okay, and you're caught cycling under the influence. But 99% of the time, the only penalty is a $250 fine. And there's no points on your driver's license or something like that? Are, are no, you insured? It Does on, it ding your car insurance? No, it doesn't ding your car insurance, but it goes on your criminal record. And it could have like a devastating effect if you know somebody wanted to get a job and they checked your criminal record and they find this you know, cycling under the influence, okay? And they see it on there and it's a crime. It's not a felony, but it's on your criminal record. Wow. And that's probably the, the worst um, penalty of all of getting um, of getting that on your record. But it so, sounds like you think it's worth fighting if you get that citation. Yeah, definitely worth fighting, okay? Because um, they have to prove um, that you were under the influence and you can demand a chemical test and if you get a good DUI lawyer, um, that's a criminal lawyer. I'm a civil lawyer, so I kind of you know don't handle those type of things. But if you get a really good DUI lawyer, I would say that he'd be able to win those cases most of the time. And on top of it all, they don't really want to prosecute those cases that much. Um, they'll give somebody a bad time if they stop you and they smell alcohol on your breath and they can you know push you around and put you in the car and put handcuffs on you and take you down and have a chemical test on you, but it's a $250 fine. And then they, you know, have to go try the case and prove the case that you were under the influence and they have no standards. Okay. It's not like they give you a breathalyzer or something and it's a 0.09 or, you know, 0.10. And then, you know, you're definitely under the influence, but they still have to prove that in a DUI case, but they don't have to prove um, that in a cycling under the influence case. Well, maybe somebody will listen and they'll be able to take your advice because that has happened on the show. Right. I'm sure that it has. And, you know, and, and the one thing that I want everybody to understand is that if they do stop you, you can demand um, to have a chemical test. It's going to mean that they're going to probably take you down to the station, um, but they'll do it like 30 minutes or, or, or 45 minutes later. And that gives, a again, a DUI attorney um, a lot of ammunition to be able to say that it's unreliable. Okay, and then even though they take the test, you know, whatever it shows, they can fight that. And it's the same for for pot and for other other drugs also, or is that just alcohol or? No, it's anything, anything that enabled, I guess, unenabled to you're you're under the influence and you're um, not acting properly or something like that, or not able to, you know, do a um, a standard, you know, test that they give you if they think that you're under the under the influence. Again, they can make up whatever they want to. <laughs> in DUI cases, it always seems like they have always the same evidence. And it's kind of the same thing here. Smell alcohol in your breath. I mean, I'm walking a straight line or or you're staggering or, or something like that. Or slurring your words or whatever. Slurring right? your words, right. It almost might be like they stop you for some other reason. And then, like you said, smell alcohol on your breath. I think in the right. future... Jim will ask you about what the legal things that you have to have on your bike are, you know, whether it be lights or a helmet or fenders or whatever it is. So thanks for that, Jim. That was really great because a lot of that information, Nick, I didn't know. Yeah. And I, and I want everybody to know that they, you know, if you do get, um, you know, stopped for this or you get a citation for it, 
they really can be successfully defended, you know, by, again, having a good lawyer for that. All right. Well, that's great to know. But you don't advise it. Don't advise drinking and biking or don't advise. No, I, I don't advise doing <laughs> that. Okay. Well, Jim Pokras of Pokras and De Los Reyes Law Offices, thanks again for coming on the show. My pleasure. Um, and I look forward to talking to you about, um, you know, what you need to, to ride a bike legally in the future. Well, that was great because I actually thought CUI, cycling under the influence, was the same as DUI. You know, not that I ride drunk all the time, but I'm kind of glad to hear that it's serious, but it's not going to cost you your license. Yeah, makes sense. They should have In bike racks instead of parking lots at bars. <laughs> Absolutely. I totally agree. In the news, Damon Kevitt of Streets Are For Everyone Safe is sponsoring another die-in at Los Angeles City Hall. We covered this last year on the show. So on Saturday, January 27th at 10 a.m. in the morning, we're asking all bike riders, old, young, experienced, novice, to show up at City Hall and protest the number of people that have been injured seriously and killed on our streets. And it's not just Los Angeles, as we've talked about on the show. It's it's New York, it's Western Massachusetts, it's Oregon, it's Detroit, it's all over the country. And so we are doing that January 27th at 10 a.m. Good. Also in Los Angeles, the LA Times endorsed the Healthy Streets LA initiative, which is a ballot measure coming out in the March primary election that would require the city to implement the city's mobility plan every time a street gets resurfaced. Great. That's a topic I bring up a little bit with Miriam Pinsky later on in the show about how you do outreach when you put in bicycle infrastructure projects. So I'm glad well, this that would, the LA Times is behind it. Well, this the, yeah, this would make outreach unnecessary. And some people are opposing it for that reason. They want to have outreach for every bike lane. Well, and the city council has already approved this plan, so we should just implement it. Also, there's a new study from UCLA that shows that scooter injuries tripled nationwide between 2016 and 2020. And Ted Rogers of bikinginla.com, uh, he points out that the study didn't differentiate between e-scooters and regular scooters, and it also didn't take into account the rapid rise in scooter ridership over the same period between 2016 and 2020. So it could be that the rise in injury rates could just mean that a higher percentage of people are riding. Yeah, it's a little misleading, I think. Could yeah. feed the anti-scooter hysteria. And there's another study from the University of Edinburgh that shows that riding a bike to work can improve mental health. And people who commute by bike are less likely to be prescribed antidepressants than people who commute by car. Really? To me, that's so obvious. I can't believe it. I'm glad they did a study to put data to that. Yeah. I mean, we knew this about exercise. This is about specifically riding a bike to work. Right. And I will file this away with that study from the Journal of Environmental Psychology that bikers are better people. And we know that also. <laughs> That's easy. Some of us knew it, but it's now scientifically proven. And to prove that everything old is new again, the EU passed a law in July of 2022 that mandated anti-speeding tech in Europe. And it's just now being finally put into use so that they're going to have some intelligent speed assistant technology mandatory for all new cars sold in Europe by 2024. That's brilliant. Do cars need to go 50, 60 miles over the highest speed limit around? Not in Europe anymore. So this uh, intelligent speed assistance will vibrate or make a sound or cut power to the accelerator pedal, but drivers can override it. Right. But it's expected to reduce speeding by 30% and traffic deaths by 20%. Wow. Well, that's another reason Fox News hates Europe, right? 
yeah, they just keep coming up with reasons. <laughs> All right. Well, we have a guest, Jack Ketchum from the Tempe, Arizona Bicycle Action Group. Hey, Jack. Hey. Hey, Jack. Good to be here. We heard about your election cycles program where you organize group bike rides for local politicians and their campaigns and you do candidate forums. Yeah, this is a uh, it's a new initiative for us. Uh, just this um, most recent election cycle, where we uh, put out a call to all of the candidates running for our local city council, inviting them to um, organize a group ride with us. Um, kind of just a chance to get some of the bicycling community out to meet them, hear what they have to say about um, the issues that matter to us. In Los Angeles, we did a ride like that. We invited the two candidates who were running for city council, and only one candidate showed up for the ride, Katie Uroslawski, and she ended up winning the contest. So how's it going there? Are people responding to it? Are they showing up for the rides? What kind of feedback yeah. are you getting from the candidates? This time around, we have five candidates running for council, and so far, we've done one uh, group ride for one of the candidates, and then this weekend, actually... We have another one scheduled with a mayoral candidate who is actually running unopposed, but he still wanted to do a bike ride. So we're doing one there. Um, And then we have another one the following week with another uh, of the council candidates. So, so far, the um, response has been good. Um, You know, kind of like everyone has been like, oh, that'd be great. You know, we haven't had everyone schedule yet, but yeah, we have had those three. Jack, tell me what you do on the rides. Do you talk about infrastructure? Do you talk about the laws? Do you talk about how transportation and housing are connected? What's the conversation with the candidates on the rides? Or is it just for fun? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a little bit of all the above. Our rides always start out with just like a brief kind of safety intro, um, just to kind of help educate some of the people on the ride in case they're not familiar with biking around in a group or in the area. And then uh, with the candidates themselves, you know, it's kind of anything goes and kind of anyone can kind of ride along with them and ask them whatever they're interested in. But I know for some of us that are hoping to run the ride, yeah, we're definitely talking about, you know, infrastructure that we'd like to see or some of the upcoming projects that the city's working on. A lot of our routes that we plan, we do kind of try to coordinate around projects that are going to be happening. They're kind of in the works. So like going down a road that is going to have a new bike lane come in so we can go down it, pointing out these infrastructure things. And yeah, like you said, with housing and kind of just land use, this like pointing out, oh, you know, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, this whole area was more bikeable or if more parts of the city were as bikeable as maybe where we are riding along. Yeah. I just put it together, the the plan words for election cycles. That's I'm yes. a little slow on that, but that's cool. Bump. Yeah. Well, I think whenever you get a politician to walk a few or to ride a few blocks in your shoes, you know, and and learn how scary some of our roads can be, but also how easily cycling can be and how it can be a real game changer. And there's a great quote that says, cycling doesn't solve any one problem by itself, but it's a part of solving many problems. And I think the more politicians that wake up to that, they'll see that, hey, backing infrastructure for vulnerable road users for multimodal transportation can be a win-win situation for the community. Yeah, definitely. With all the people that come out for these rides too, I mean, you know, some people actively involved with our bike group and some people just in the neighborhood, you know, you get people out on e-bikes there on like recumbent bikes. So just all kind of all different kinds of folks coming out to ride bikes. And so seeing them all come together that way and being able to ride down the street like that is super nice. When we do these routes, we kind of pick some of the nicer kind of bike boulevard designated routes. Someday, you know, we'll take them on a little bit more of an adventurous route, maybe down some some strodes in the area. 
That's great. Jack, there's a lot that you do. You do the rides. You did a forum. You have questionnaires. Yeah. So the rides is kind of one element of our local election outreach efforts with um, Tempe Bicycle Action Group. And then we also did, like you mentioned, a forum. So that was something where the city of Tempe actually helped to facilitate three forums this election cycle. And we organized one of them where we invited all the candidates to come and answer questions specifically about transportation in Tempe. And then we do have a questionnaire that we send out to the candidates as well. So same kind of questions as the forum covered, uh, transportation and cycling related questions that we just send out to all the candidates, ask for their response, and then we post um, what we get back on our website, spread it on our socials and mailing list. You're trying to do that in LA, right, Taylor? Yeah, we're trying to get Karen Bass, the mayor here in Los Angeles, to show up at a forum where we can talk about not just transportation issues, but safe streets for vulnerable road users. We were very fortunate to have a good response from the candidates, and then we had a good response from the public, too. I think we had close to like 75 people there total. We also ran a bike valet, and we had like 20-some bikes out front, like right next to the front door, so it was very easy to see you know, how many people rode in on their bikes. And I think also just letting the politicians know that bikers vote. Exactly. We care about these issues and we seriously want action on them. So yeah, it's important to show them that. Great. Well, I think that's really wonderful, Jack. You know, you get everybody to be engaged in the issue and then whoever wins, they will know a little bit more about what it's like to ride on the roads of Tempe, Arizona. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's the whole idea. I'm going to go visit my grandma this week near Phoenix. Maybe I'll look you guys up. Yeah, definitely. There's also Phoenix spokespeople. If you're out more in the Phoenix area, is another good local group. All well, right. Jack Ketchum of the Tempe Bicycle Action Group, thanks for coming on Bike Talk. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. This is great. I love what Jack is doing because it really does make that axiom that politics is all local. Yeah. Speaking of local politics, last week we talked about how LA Metro is uh, giving its bike share operations away to Lyft. And I don't think giving's the right word, but I'm not sure. But the meeting they had on it was postponed because there was an outpouring of support for the company that's running it now, Bicycle Transit Systems. Good. But we did talk a little bit last week about Lyft. Lyft was going to take it over, and we got a listener email about that. Alex Cannon wrote, Lyft Bike Share, which is Divi in Chicago, is great. And he also says he's a regular cyclist, which we had questions about, right? You Right. Well, that was that... me. I was wrong. You know, I I said I thought bike shares were used by more novice cyclists than serious cyclists and what Alex points out in his email is that, you know, he wanted access to an e-bike. And so he can get that through the bike share or he likes the other issues of a bike share. Like you don't have to worry about maintenance or you don't have to worry about theft. If you're riding downtown to a game or something like that, you just drop off the bike share bike. So Nick, I was wrong. Well, we don't know the proportion of experienced cyclists that use bike share and right. how many people who are not really ready to ride in challenging conditions. Right. But Lyft has bike share in Bay Area, in Chicago, Columbus, Denver, Metro DC, New York City, and Portland. Wow. I and didn't know that. So last week we reported that, you know, there's some red flags about Lyft. Like they're abandoning cities, like they're abandoning bike share, their ride share uh, with cars is really their priority. But Alex likes Lyft. 
because he said they're doing a good job in Chicago. I mean, what's not to like if they're doing a good job, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. And he says that Lyft pays Chicago over $6 million a year to run Divi, Chicago's bike share. And he says that while that money is tapped for cycling infrastructure projects like the recently completed and ever continuous Dickens Greenway, I think it's fascinating to question if that money would be better spent subsidizing the bike share system itself. So it's been said more than once that cities should subsidize their own bike share system. Alex ends with the question, with a limited pool of money, how do we spend it best to flip the script on actions and attitudes with regards to active mobility? So that's a good question. Well, do you have to change attitudes to increase active mobility or do you just have to build the infrastructure? Well, I think a lot of bike advocates would say, just build it and they will come. You know, I think that's what they've done in Paris a little bit. Uh, Heather Stimler, who's on the show later, talks a little bit about that in Paris. Age-old question, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? The egg? No, I'm saying the chicken. The chick and the chicken is the infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would say. You have to have safe places to ride the bike, even if you're an experienced cyclist who is using the bike share to use an e-bike or something like that. But I think Alex's point is well made that we also have to put the money back into bike share to one, lower the cost. We talked about BTS last week, that they have tripled their number of applications for reduced fare bike share program, which is wonderful, mm -hmm. I think. And you and I have talked that you know public transit should be cheap or free. But our first guest is Heather Stimler from secretsofparis.com. She lives in Paris and is a cyclist. And she talks a lot about the the Lib, the Paris bike share program that kind of really moved the ball down the field in getting people more comfortable being on the street. So let's hear that. We have an American in Paris, maybe you could say. Heather Stimler is the editor and founder of a website called Secrets of Paris. And she has a section there called Paris by Bike. Heather Stimler, welcome to Bike Talk. Thanks for inviting me. Last week, we talked about the tale of two cities, Los Angeles and New York, and what successes and failures those two cities have had in making them safer for biking. And I wonder if you could tell us what successes and if there are any, what failures do you think has happened in Paris as far as street safety? I've always biked around Paris, uh, especially when the weather's nice in the summer when there's fewer cars because most of the Parisians go on vacation. But it was always a little tricky because even if there were bike lanes, they always were attached to car lanes. So it would just be like the white line on the side and there right. would always be cars, especially delivery cars, but just any cars parked in the bike lanes. So you had to you know, go around them or and it was always dangerous. So it was always a little scary. And the Valib came in 2007. Um, Valib is, is the bike share program. Yeah, the bike right. share program. And uh, immediately I thought it was awesome. Uh, I think a lot of people thought it was great. Um, so that made it a little bit easier to get a bike that you didn't have to have yourself, which is also, I mean, I think people say that the reason they don't want to buy a bike is because they're worried it's going to get stolen. That's sure. one of the biggest risks. And I know quite a few people who've had their bikes stolen. So I thought, well, this is great. Not only do I not have to worry about if it breaks, <laughs> uh, I don't have to worry if it gets stolen because it's not mine. So when the Valib came in 2007, 
it made it so much easier for people to test out using a bike without having to commit to buying one and not right. having to worry about what happened to it. They also have electric Velibes. Oh, so wow. A little bit more, but those are fun too, because then you can zoom around on the hills if you live on one of the hilly spots in Paris. So that actually made things a little bit better, but it was still fairly dangerous and risky to ride around Paris. And I was always very conscious of riding like, you know, on a Sunday or not during rush hour, not during like sunset. They always say sunset when people are on their way home and they're angry and they want to get there fast. That, right. That's so dangerous to ride. And Parisian drivers, I mean, they are a little, they're a little scary. So, um, but I mean, fast forward way forward, people probably forgot about this unless you were in Paris during the holidays of uh, 2000. 19, which was we had a, a strike that went on and on and on, a transport strike. Right. And it was cold, but people were just so sick of not being able to get to work or to school or where they needed to go. So it was actually that November, December of 2019 that people really started using bikes again. And I think e-bikes got cheaper and some of the new bike lanes had been put in. So people started using them. And then when COVID hit, it just skyrocketed. And one of the big biggest changes is that they they had all this time to finish the infrastructure, putting in separate bike lanes. So right. bikes that are separated from the streets with a little concrete verge there. I don't know what you call that in English, uh, like a curb. A curb or something. Yeah, yeah, a curb. Yeah. And sometimes even separate, like they would put the parking spots on the other side of the curb. So yeah. there's also like a line of cars blocking you. So that made it a lot safer because also a lot of the bus lanes were also bike lanes and there's... Like there's still a few of those and there's nothing more terrifying than riding down a street and having a bus pass you. Yeah. Um, you know, especially or just come up behind you and kind of be right on your rear. Road. Oh yeah. Yeah. Both. So the, the bike lanes that are separate from the bus lanes were really big game changers. And they, especially during COVID, they put in these special lanes that were temporary lanes just during COVID that were almost the exact same routes as the metros. Cause people were obviously terrified to take the metro. Right. And they would have these um, kind of like these really ugly uh, fluorescent yellow cones. And um, sometimes they use these hunks of concrete, like just different ways of separating the lanes from the car so that the cars could absolutely not park or right. drive in those lanes. I want to say also, like the more people were using these lanes, the bike lanes, the more bikes there were, sure. the harder it was for cars to just come and park there because um, you know, they'll still go over the curb. And go into a bike lane once in a while, but um, but it just made it a lot harder because there were so many bikes that there was no like you know if, if the if a car is trying to park and they don't see anybody there, they might pull over into the bike lane. But but now that's really hard. Well, one of the things we talked about last week about New York and L.A. is lack of political leadership. Let me ask you, when did Anne Hildago, the mayor of Paris, become mayor? Do you know? Um, I about when that. she's. Wait, so she's, uh, this is her second term and the terms are six years. So since 2014, I believe. So it seems like she's really been the impetus of changing Paris from a car dominated city to a city dominated by what alternate transportation. Yeah. So this is the, this is the fascinating part. <laughs> she's definitely taking a lot of credit for the bikes in Paris. Um, it's possible that they won't finish all of the bike lanes that they want to finish and that they won't have enough, uh, obviously, parking is another problem, like where to where to put your bike. Right. So there's a lot of- Oh, you know, bike parking. Good. Exactly. Oh, yeah, I thought yeah. you were talking I mean, about I, car parking. Yeah. And no, one of the things oh. I heard is that Paris is actually removing 
what, like a thousand parking spaces a month or something like that. They're really oh, struggling I to change yes, uh, the so way yes, the city they, is planned, right? Yes. So they're removing not just for bikes, but also for schools. So around schools, they're removing, they're turning them into pedestrian streets uh, or removing like whole like places where the cars can park so that there's fewer cars there and just putting like trees and planters there so that wow. places where there's lots of children walking around, they don't want as much car traffic. But yeah, so this is the reason that this is complicated with the politics is that each arrondissement, there's uh, 20 districts of Paris and each district's called an arrondissement. Each one has its own mayor and each mayor decides what to do with their infrastructure. So even oh. though there's this grand plan for Paris, each mayor can either push it or block it. And so like my neighborhood is sort of an in-between neighborhood because one of the major axes um, does not have a bike lane. And yeah, that street terrifies me all the time. Uh, and the mayor blocked it specifically. I'm not sure why, what the reasoning was, but um, other neighborhoods, they have, you know, all the major streets have separate bike lanes now. So, and they just came out, I think in October, Le Monde, the big newspaper uh, published a, a sort of a scorecard, which, which neighborhoods are doing better than others in terms of like promoting cycling and um, building that infrastructure. So that's, what's really moving it. Cause there are, they say there are twice as many bikes now than there were even a year ago, especially wow. during rush hour. Right. And they say, so the people are taking up the bikes, but it's the politicians that are slowing things down. Like they actually like keeping up with the number of bikes that are on the road now. Right. Yeah. That seems to be what it's like here in the States is mm. that the politicians are behind the curve. We often hear that it took Amsterdam 50 years to sort of get where they are after the oil crisis in the 1970s. And it's taken Paris, you know, maybe 10 years since Anne Hildago was mm -hmm. installed as mayor, 2014 to 2024, something like that. And it seems like they've really jumped a fair amount forward in those 10 years and have accomplished a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I really think that riding now is just so different. I mean, I go everywhere on my bike and I rent I rent a bike now long term. So it's my own bike, but I, I rent it through a, uh, it's actually a Dutch company, not surprisingly, mm -hmm. called Swap Feeds, the blue the blue tire bikes. Um, so I rent that so that if anything happens to it, I don't have to, you know, I just call them and they come and pick it up and give me a new bike. So um, wow. very stress-free and it's a nice bike. But and do you do your errands on the bike? Do you go to the store? Do you have like a, a baguette sticking out of the basket in the back of your bike <laughs> as you ride down the, a the little Rue bit, day? Yeah. It's a big Dutch bike with a huge basket on the front. And I every once in a while, like I bought a I bought a little miniature Christmas tree one year and it was like trying to figure out how to like strap it on to the front of this basket so that if I if I crash, I didn't have a Christmas tree in my face. But you see a lot of people commuting with their children, like taking their children to school. And they've got these um, mostly electric. They'll have these electric bikes, either the cargo bikes that you sure. can like stick the kids sort of like, like in this big box. Or they can stick like two or three toddlers behind them. There's somebody in my neighborhood. I see the guy, his dad, riding by, and he's got three small children on the back of the bike. You know, yeah. and they've got like I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like a little cage around them. So it seems like Paris has really jumped forward. There's a video on your on your site, Secrets of Paris, Paris by Bike. There's a great video, and and the streets look like Amsterdam. You know, so many bikes yes. coming and going and all that. Has there been much popular backlash? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Parisians, Parisians love to complain. They love to be against things. So in a way, like 
the reason that there's so many cyclists is because they are it, it's a big like f you to public transport and traffic jams they're like we're gonna bike and you can't stop us but right. then also you have the flip side of that which is now um you know not all the not all the cyclists stop at red lights sometimes sure. they go down the wrong way i mean so there's a lot of anarchy uh, on the streets, but also um, cars are quite angry because they feel like they are being trapped in bigger traffic jams now because of all the bike lanes. There's a main road through the center of Paris called the Rue de Rivoli that goes all the way from Bastille. It basically becomes the Champs-Élysées at some point, but it changes names. But that entire street is now just for bikes and um, and buses and taxis. So that used to be one of the main arteries through the center of Paris. And during COVID, I think it was just pedestrians and bicycles. But wow. so it's a it's a huge change, but obviously the cars hate it. And also the expressways that used to go along the Seine River uh, were closed a few years ago, actually now, but they were closed so that uh, pedestrians and cyclists could enjoy it. And um, so, you know, there's these huge traffic jams now, like above, instead of down on the river, it's like above on the street. So it's hard to say who's at fault. Uh, Anne Hidalgo is not very popular. Um, people don't like her. Everything that's wrong, like if somebody like left a pizza box on the on a park bench, like, oh, Anne Hidalgo, it's her fault. <laughs> <laughs> so they say that Paris is more dangerous now because all these cyclists riding around like, you know, willy nilly. Well, like when you're in a car, at least for the French uh, laws, it's almost always your fault. Oh. absolutely Because you're the bigger Right. You're the dangerous one. See, it's the opposite here. If you're driving a car and you hit someone, it's almost always the person's fault that you hit. And the yeah. driver gets off, not always scot-free, but oftentimes with a slap on the wrist or something like that. Well, I wonder if you could explain what the overall change in Paris is. Is it quieter? Is it more friendly? Is it, I mean, with all these bikes in the street, is it a positive change or do you think it's a negative change? I think if you're only getting around by bike and and on foot, I, I think it's positive. I mean, I I see the positive side of it because it's a it's just fun. Right. So like in a city where everybody's just zooming around on their bikes, it's um it feels really I don't know almost like we're 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 cheating. You know, <laughs> it's right. it's fun and we get to get around. And you know, when you're when you're flying through the streets next to a completely blocked traffic jam that that you're not in because you're right. on a bike. It's right. uh, it's hard not to stick out your tongue, but again, I think um, the cars claim that it makes it more polluted because there's more traffic jams. So I don't know how much of that is actually true because the, all the signs are showing that you know fewer people are driving. You know, just right. like over the past ten years, there's more bike use, less car use inside Paris. But you know, there's only eight percent. They say there's only eight percent of the population in Paris that get around by bike. That's not oh, a really huge no. But it yeah. feels like a lot, like you said, it feels like Amsterdam or Copenhagen. You know, there's right. just as many. You definitely, like if you haven't been in Paris in the past three or four years, when you visit, you really have to look both ways, like a swivel head, because you step off the curb, you know, there could be a bike coming the opposite way of the traffic because they're allowed to, they're allowed right. to go the other way. As awful as that would be, it's better to get hit by a bike than an SUV. Oh, definitely. You're yeah. a journalist. I've Let's talk quickly about your website, Secrets of Paris and Paris by Bike. How long have you been doing that? And sort of what is the what is the focus of it and how do people find it? 
Yeah, well, you can find it on secretsofparis.com. And I started it in 1999 when I first moved to Paris after being a student here. And it was just the first place I could really write uh, what I wanted to write without an editor telling me what to write. Right. So it's about fun. There aren't really any secrets in Paris. Right. <laughs> Cities under a microscope. Everybody knows everything about Paris. It's just some people know more than others. So I'm I'm just trying to make sure that there's information that isn't already everywhere. So I mean, nobody needs another list of where to find pastries in Paris right. and all of the place. But you were telling me how you came to Paris and found it hard to figure out how to use the Velie. Yeah, yeah. So things like that. So some of the articles they're not super sexy. Um, some of the most popular articles are on just really practical things like how do I get a rental bike and you know, right. there's no ads, I'm no, not that's selling great. anything. It's uh, completely user supported, one could say. So I have a really loyal following of people who either have been coming to Paris for years or who live here or live here part time. Well, I wish I had known about it when I was there because I'm looking at your Paris by bike site right now, and you have headlines, bike lane maps, more bike lanes every year. If yeah. you're a new cyclist or new to Paris, paracycling rules, where to park your bike, all this really great information about how to explore Paris by bike. Well, you'll have to do it next time you come. Heather Stemmler, thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk and sharing all your knowledge about Paris and letting us know about your website, secretsofparis.com and how to bike in Paris. It's really helpful for anybody who is going to go to Paris and hopefully bike. What does um, parlez-vous français mean? Do you speak French? No, I don't. That's why I asked. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't well, think I've ever actually heard that before. That <laughs> well, I'm glad you talked to Heather. Paris is transforming the city for bikes. And to go back to our listener email, did they have to change attitudes to build infrastructure? seems like they just built the infrastructure and it was used. I think a lot of the attitudes changed as the infrastructure got more used, as it was there longer. Although she did point out that it wasn't conflict-free. There was a lot of car you know, pushback in Paris. It's, it wasn't all roses either. Yeah, but the, the best answer to that pushback was just to do it. Absolutely. And that's exactly what I talk about with Miriam Pinsky in this next interview. Miriam Pinsky is a PhD from UCLA and talks a lot about cycling infrastructure, and she advocates for just do it. We've recently had on the show some advocates who have been talking about how difficult it is to get bicycle infrastructure in. You'll go through 20 or 30 community meetings and some neighbor will say, well, I don't want a bike lane in my neighborhood. But there are no meetings, it seems like, when you widen the 405 or when you tear down a neighborhood to put in a highway. So today we have an expert in the field, Miriam Pinsky, who is a PhD from UCLA, also works at the Shared Use Mobility Center. And she has written an article recently about how we conduct outreach four different kinds of projects. Miriam's been on the show a bunch of times. There's also a frequent LA Times contributor. Miriam Pinsky, welcome back to Bike Talk. Thanks so much for having me uh, on this important and hot topic. Tell me what got you writing on this. First of all, my big priority is street safety. And it seems like all too often a big block to getting in what seems like obvious improvements for safer streets would be um, kind of opposed at the local level um, by a handful of advocates who don't like their driving getting slowed down. And so I was just kind of curious, like, well, why are we requiring all these 
kind of this public input and community outreach, like what are the benefits of that? Like what, you know, there must be, right? There, there's gotta be a lot of benefits for us to be doing this so much. Right. Um, so kind of worked on this study trying to assess like what the what do the practitioners say um, are the benefits? What are they actually doing and what might be the costs? And when you're talking about the benefits, you're talking about what are the benefits of community outreach, right? Yeah. And, you know, there are definitely benefits. I mean, this all kind of comes as, you know, part because of the backlash from, you know, in the 1960s when planners and engineers cut through neighborhoods to put in highways and displaced people um, in this kind of brute way. And now the pendulum in some ways has kind of swung the other way. So we do have participation process that are basically legally required for long range transportation plans. But we also now incorporate them basically into all sorts of short-term pilot projects that are intended to slow streets. Um, and it seems like every time we need to add, you know, a bike lane or something that would slow down cars, you kind of have these public input opportunities, right. um, even if they're just for short-term pilots. Right. And what I find interesting about it is like, this is all... <laughs> You know, if you look at recent funding from the Biden administration for Vision Zero, which is this effort to get our traffic fatalities down to zero, a lot of that money is going to community studies rather than into the actual infrastructure improvements to make streets safer. Right. So, you know, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with these studies, right? Like there are benefits. You're you're empowering residents to be part of the local planning process local expertise is incorporated, but they do come at cost. There's just kind of this trade-off between the resources you're putting into studying issues and getting feedback and the delays and costs those add. Right. So in some ways it's this prioritizing the process or the outcomes. And just, you know, given how dangerous our streets are, it seems pretty clear that we aren't doing that well prioritizing outcomes. Right. Well, you know, as a bicycle advocate and as someone who has served on community boards and, and neighborhood councils, I think I always thought that that was really a positive thing that we were doing these outreaches. Is that the right tense of the word outreaches? I don't know that it is, <laughs> but uh, but we would have, you know, online meetings. We would ride the bike route with neighbors and we would do all this outreach. And I think that I looked at it as as an education process, as a way of getting people maybe even to say on my side about why we needed a bike lane in here. But that's not always what happens, is it? I mean, I totally agree. Those are really positive things. And especially for people who aren't used to biking or, or walking around, having that kind of community engagement is great. But at the same time, you know, if we were to compare bike improvements to kind of car improvements, there's just such a difference. So if you were to look at, you know, you know, of course, there is community input required for long range transportation plans. So that's for car and bike improvements. And that kind right. of varies by where you live. But even these short term pilot projects require public approval often to continue. And in that way, these active transportation projects are a lot less technocratic than car centered improvements. So like, as an example, parking requirements are very formulaic. If right. you are going to build a two-bedroom apartment, you need whatever, one and a half spaces. Uh, if you're going to build a bowling alley, you need some ratio of parking spots to bowling lanes. I mean, it's really arbitrary, but it is formulaic. Um, but if you want to get a bus lane or a bike lane, you need to make sure that the community is on board. 
And again, the most contentious issues are not the ones that make driving more convenient. They're the ones that make driving less convenient, like taking away parking for a bike lane. So right. one more counterexample. Um, we don't require community input in like sewage policy. We just trust the city is going to manage its sewage and wastewater. And if something goes wrong, we don't say, hold on, let's have a public meeting. Let's discuss what we should do in this emergency. We immediately act on it. Now, our roads are in a state of emergency. There are, you know, traffic fatalities are a huge public health problem. But when someone is killed walking on a street by a driver, the Department of Transportation doesn't immediately put in street improvements to prevent that from happening again. They hold a meeting. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. I wonder, can you give an example of a public participation process that went wrong for a bike lane project? Oh, I mean, there are so many. <laughs> I'm sure any of your listeners, anyone's attended a public meeting about a safe street improvement has their share of stories. But, you know, for example, a few years ago, there's a street near me in West Hollywood, Willoughby. And that is a street that's really a designated bike route. It's a residential street. Um, but often drivers would use it to avoid some major arterials. So the city set up some temporary installments for just five blocks, some plastic bollards in the middle to kind of narrow the lane, a roundabout, and a traffic diverter that required drivers going one way to shift down to another street. Now, drivers hated this. Um, there was very little, if any, enforcement. And so drivers would do these crazy maneuvers to kind of get around the traffic diverter. Uh, this was only, by the way, a six-month project, I think. And it was only going to continue if it got community approval. So, you know, I attended a meeting, I offered feedback, and the comments from residents were entirely predictable and incredibly infuriating. <laughs> People just accused the city of catering to cyclists who didn't live there. And then the city, of course, they said, oh, well, we conducted our own study. We found that drivers were much more likely to be using this street as a cut through on their commutes. It's the drivers that are coming out of town, not the cyclists. Right. But, you know, the facts really didn't matter. It didn't matter how much safer this was going to make the street. And in the end, the city just ripped out the improvements. And a week after they ripped out those improvements, there was a major collision on what should have been a very quiet, safe residential street. You know, I have to stop you because I live right on that street. And I live oh. on the street where the diverter was. I've been a part of Safer Willoughby and, and a part of the West Hollywood Bicycle Coalition for years trying to make Willoughby a safer route to commute east-west on. Now, I don't want to get too much into the weeds on this show because we have a national audience, but it is exactly what you're talking about. And I bike on Willoughby all the time, and yeah, it has become one of the most dangerous streets that I bike on yeah. because cars cut through all the time and they speed from stop sign to stop sign. And I've been really disappointed in the city for not sticking with that pilot and for not continuing to put in improvements. I could not believe it either. And it's just so typical too the response, you know, that we act like the people who are walking and biking aren't, you know, don't deserve uh, you know, safe street improvements. It's the drivers who are inconvenienced. Right. And what I found funniest of all was that they really were blaming the the very obvious street improvements on the city rather than the drivers, because the drivers didn't know how to respond to right. traffic bollards and signs. It right. was absurd. 
Well, I often think that the pilot project wasn't full enough that had there been two diverters, people who were driving through and going around the one diverter would have said, finally, if there's two diverters, I'm not going to deal with it. I'll go back to the main east-west arteries and not cut through this neighborhood. And another like minor pet peeve of mine here, too, is that one of the issues was that they used temporary plastic bollards. And so it was incredibly easy for if a car really wanted to, to get around those things. If we'd used concrete bollards, but of course, cities don't want to do that because they're worried that that might... uh... Dent a car. Yes. Rather than kill a person. Yes. Yeah. Are there better ways to do public outreach or how should it be done so that it is fair? Right. I mean, people often say that it's just a minority of people who show up and have outsized influence and they don't represent the broader community. And, you know, intuitively, that makes sense. Um, You have these public meetings that often take place maybe during work hours um, that are hard to manage if you have other household responsibilities. Maybe you have to get to a meeting place. But, you know, I'm not sure the data totally support that when public meetings switched to Zoom and were made accessible. A study found that it was still disproportionately white and older residents that attended. And I examined participation rates in these community studies that were specifically targeted at disadvantaged communities that really tried to a whole range of ways to kind of incorporate public input that was really flexible, even compensation was offered. But even then, response rates were really low and participants not generally representative. So I'm not sure that the issue is how you do public participation so much as that most people have a lot going on in their lives and don't necessarily want to spend that time transportation planning. Let me ask you this. Is there an alternative to participatory planning? Is is a more top-down technocratic approach? Is that such a bad thing? Well, I mean, I don't think that, you know, technocratic planning, which is basically where you have professionals lead it. Um, and use these kind of clearly defined metrics is necessarily bad. Right. I think, you know, what really matters is what are planners and engineers' priorities? And right now those priorities are maximizing car speeds. But what if the priorities were to maximize safety and accessibility and not automobility? What if transportation projects were decided based on how much they would reduce cycling and pedestrian deaths? And make trips shorter for everyone. So it'd be easier to walk and bike to where you had to go. Right. It'd be a lot more efficient to create a bike and walk network based on very clearly defined safety needs rather than force every block of a bike lane to go through community approval. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad alternative. Right. Well, that sounds to me a little bit like your sewer analogy. You're not going to ask a neighbor what the best way to put in a sewer is or what the best route for that sewer to the drain is. Right. I mean, how much time do you have in a day and how much time should we be asking residents to make those decisions and, you know, rather than just the experts who we pay to do that? Right. Well, how might we go about street improvements without public participation or without, you know, car centered engineering principles? I mean, I think sometimes just putting numbers to outcomes can really like illuminate the trade offs between alternative policies. So, By that, I mean, you know, if we're going to measure the costs and benefits of whether to transform a car lane into a bike lane or just maintaining it as a car lane, maybe you could, you know, you'd be forced to assign values to different costs and benefits and kind of see the bigger picture a bit better. You know, how much do we really care about safety or about travel speeds or air pollution 
um, I think there are really promising methods in which you can measure the social cost of transportation projects um, in places like Copenhagen, where they essentially try to assign values to all the different externalities of a transportation project and then make decisions, you know, informed decisions kind of based off of those numbers. It's not perfect. It's hard to do. But it's, it's I think, a better way of doing things than we are now. Right. Well, I can speak from my time on the neighborhood council that oftentimes one is trying to educate other people on the council or other people that are speaking. There are certain terms now that we all take for granted, like induced demand or whatever it is that some people just don't know about and they haven't read the books or they haven't thought about it. And I'm not a planning engineer. I'm just a neighbor and a bicycle advocate and a bicycle rider. And I end up having to sort of explain urban planning 101 to a council member who is angry that they are putting in a traffic circle. And he or she says, well, I have to slow down when I go around the traffic circle. And I have to say, well, that's the whole point of the traffic circle is that the infrastructure of the street slows you down so that you don't hit anybody or that if you do hit anybody, you hit them at 10 miles an hour, not 30 miles an hour. Yeah. And I think if we had a government that we trusted to keep streets safe, maybe we wouldn't be questioning these decisions quite as much. But as it is, I mean, our streets are so dangerous. There might be a bit of skepticism around any kind of changes to them. I'm not sure. But like, I think that at this point, we really should be uh, not wasting time conducting studies right. and, and just putting in what we know works. So, and those are things that unfortunately are going to slow people down. Right. People who live in very car-centric neighborhoods in the U.S., you know, will go to Copenhagen or some other city that's incredibly, um, you know, the streets are slow, but they can walk and take transit everywhere. And they come back raving about what a great experience it was. Why can't we have nice things like that? And it's like, well, we we really could. You just might complain. Right. Well, it does seem like there is a learning curve to change. And I think the enforcement component is huge. Because it wasn't enforced, people also felt fine breaking the rule. Right. What's funny is a lot of these projects are pilots. You know, a pilot is generally something you need to learn from. It's something kind of novel. But I'm not sure why a slow street improvement is something that needs studying. To me, it seems like the the figures are pretty clear and we know what will make streets safe. It's a robust literature. Right. <laughs> that confirms ways to make streets safer. So having something be a pilot and short-lived like that, I really don't see the benefit to it other than that it's a way for elected officials to kind of wipe their hands clean of any backlash. Right. Well, Miriam Pinsky, thank you so much. I think you're right. I think we just have to do some of these projects. We just have to put them in and let people be upset in the short run, and then they will realize in the long run, wait a minute, my neighborhood's quieter, my neighborhood's cleaner. Um, it's safer and more fun to jog or walk my dog or walk my my kids around the block or even ride to Trader Joe's. I hope so. <laughs> thanks Thank for coming on Bike Talk and thanks for all the work you've been doing. Thank you. So what I got from those two interviews, Nick, is we just have to do it. If we build it, they will come. And we have to allow for the idea that the attitudes will change when the infrastructure is in place and more people are using the road in that manner. Well, that's the idea behind the Healthy Streets LA initiative, which is going to be on the ballot in LA in March. March. Yeah. And I think they do that in other places when a road is resurfaced, just put in a bike lane or- Well, we were talking about that in New York. Alexa Sledge last week mentioned that. If you build it, they will come. 
right? Kevin Costner from a cornfield, right? Thanks for another show. Another great show, Taylor. Absolutely. If you like the show, give us a thumbs up. If you have questions for Anne-Marie Drolet, let us know. If you have questions for Jim Pokras, the lawyer, let us know. We are loving all the listener emails that are coming in. We are on fire. <laughs> yeah. We're expanding our, our, our reach. Our global into, reach. Yeah. We're in a bunch of radio stations on Pacifica Network. It's great to hear from people from different areas. You know, we, we have had people on from Japan, from Iceland, from Paris. I think I'll reach out to London next. Buenos Aires, uh, Soweto, South Africa. Oh, wow. Yeah. And of course, the Netherlands. Right. Copenhagen. And Ukraine also. That's right. Uh, same guy from Copenhagen was in Ukraine when we talked to him, Mikhail. Right. But if you're listening from you know across the planet Earth, uh, let us know that also. We'd love to do a story from your home country. All right. Thanks, Taylor. See you, Nick. Hi, this is Stacy with a bike thought. Because communities were displaced or erased to make way for highways, we now feel the obligation to ensure that every person is okay if there is a bike or transit lane put on their street. Catering to cars only means that they are more likely to sicken, injure, and harm us. Changing their use to protect people walking and biking and to speed transit will slow cars. Often parking will be sacrificed, and we have to start making that clear because the speed and convenience of the few is having terrible impacts on all of us. The days of outreach, notification, participation, and process when it comes to making our streets safer must end. We don't have high food poisoning restaurants. We don't have high crash airlines. So why do we have high injury corridors? We need our cities to start shifting to make us safer from drivers. Until they do, asthma, obesity, injuries, fatalities, emissions, and global temperatures will continue to rise. It's time for our city leaders to embrace Paris's Mayor Anne Hidalgo because she's proven if you build it, they will ride. This episode of Bike Talk is sponsored by the law offices of Pocross and De Los Reyes with offices in Los Angeles, Bakersfield, and serving all of Southern California. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Catch yourself a bike. Oh, 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 catch yourself a bike. Oh,